KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes, presenting Scene on the Screen with Jacqueline Coley, a new podcast about the people at NBC Universal and the movies that define them. Available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. From KCRW Santa Monica and KCRW.com, it's The Treatment. It's The Treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. If I took the time to go for all the accolades that Billie Eilish and Phineas have, we'd be out of time. So instead, we'll just go straight to the interview and talk about their newest piece to be nominated for Grammys. The song is from the, the soundtrack for Barbie. We had Greta Gerwig here talking about that film. And the song, What Was I Made For? First of all, guys, thanks so much for being here. Congratulations on the Song of the Year and Record of the Year and all the other Grammy nominations. But let me throw this out. I mean, there's a line in the song, I don't know how to feel. That, for me, is something that's communicated in so many of the songs you guys do together. <laughs> well, thanks for all of that, first of all. I think that line just, like, speaks for itself and is like exactly what that whole song encapsulates. You know, we wrote the song about Barbie, obviously, and the whole idea is like she physically doesn't know how to feel and emotionally doesn't know how to feel. But then it's like such a real metaphor for like, you know, how we all kind of feel most of the time of like, I don't know how I feel about this. Or I think it works in so many ways. I think it's like, I don't know what I'm supposed to feel or I don't actually know how I feel in my life right now. I'm, you know, I think we all go through like periods of like identity issues and and crises and, you know, not even knowing what we feel and what, you know, what we like and what we're drawn to and um, losing ourselves in a little way. So I, I love that line because I think it it can mean so many different things. And I, I just I think that's really cool. Yeah, but I think it even takes me back to listen before I go, that line, sorry, I don't know how. So often there's a sentiment like that because the songs kind of start in these big emotional states for me. And we could certainly say that what I was made for is certainly kind of a, a feminist sort of anthem. And it starts mm-hmm. in this way big with those spare chords and like that hint of drum in the background. And then they sort of coalesce to these intimate moments for me. And, and I just think of so often that that moment of sort of plaintiveness and vulnerability comes across in a song. I mean, thank you. I think um, the most effective way to get a message across, I think, is to do as little as possible. I think that's sort of always been our sonic rule is uh, when you have a melody that you feel is um, worthy and you have a lyric you're proud of to not try to hide it, not try to cover it up, to just let it be the center of attention and the more sort of vulnerable, the better. And I think vulnerability to me is easiest, most easily achieved through that sort of minimalistic approach. I guess I think, too, because so often these songs, and again, I just think about Listen Before I Go or even uh, When I Was Older, these songs that are seem to me to be written from character points of view, and certainly what I was made for is a perfect kind of example of that, but it's so often what I think of you guys is doing writing from character points of view. I even think of um, Bad Guy feels like it's from a, a character point of view. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing that Phineas and I have talked about for years now, which is this, we really thrive when we write from character points of view. And every time we we do, we always kind of give each other like a high five of like, <laughs> you, you know, you, you you give us a prompt, we can we can really go off with the prompt. We're good you know? employees. We're, we are good employees. It's I, I think we're, that is one of our strongest suits is um, 
you know, writing from characters, writing from other people's perspectives and different storytelling. You know, it's just like, I I, th- I don't know what that comes from. I don't know if it's like our love of like film or something, but like, I think it's just really important to us to tell a story. And it's so interesting. I hear people talk about how songwriting can be about like truth, you know, and, and how it's all about honesty. And I think in some ways it is, but for us, it's about, storytelling and the better we can tell a story the happier I think we are whether that's our story or you know somebody else's and uh, if we get the opportunity to write about a character in a movie and especially if it's something so moving and as moving as Barbie everything about it in that character like you know that was our that's like a, a perfect example of like our dream like our favorite thing to write for we basically went from writing fan fiction for years <laughs> to like being allowed to write um true ip no it's really true like we really were fan fiction writers for a long time oh we come were on now, like what, what did you do like what fan fiction did you write come on don't, like one of the first two songs we ever made was yeah, the first. What were the first? Two I was songs? talking. Fingers crossed. Oh, <laughs> oh shoot! Was yeah. that fan? Oh my god! <sighs> yeah. Well, well, when I was yeah, the first song I wrote was Fingers Crossed, and that was that was a song about The Walking Dead. You know, stuff like that. And then we would we would write little songs pretending they were for Bond movies. And then, of course, <laughs> eventually, we got eventually that actually happened. And that was so crazy because we had literally spent, you know, years being like, oh, that'd be so cool to make a Bond song. Yeah, this, this song sounds like a James this Bond. This song Let's sounds like James Bond. Let's pretend it's a James Bond song. And imagine... We had to write a song for a movie with Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling. Like, what would that, that would would be so crazy. What would we do? You know, we were always like writing these like, yeah, like literal fan. Like we're just fans, you know, and it's just, we're just, we're just somehow accidentally here is how I see it. It's the treatment. My guests who may someday get to write a song for Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling are Billie Eilish and Phineas. We t- of course, talking about the song when I was made for. You can hear the show at kcrw.com slash the treatment. But it's so funny because so often in these songs, there is like a moment of like almost like terror. And we talked about that in <laughs> What Was I Made For? But also in Bury a Friend. I mean, there these moments you just kind of go, <gasps> what's the moment of terror and what was I made for? <laughs> I don't know how to feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose so. Yeah, I suppose so. That to me is like almost an existential question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, it's it's it is true. I think like also like I feel like every every part of that song is just like a dagger in the heart a little bit. Yeah, I think like especially the 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 second verse just feels like geez, it just feels like this like oh my god, it feels like if you were talking to a friend and they said the things in the second verse, you'd be like oh, man, like, that is such a bummer to hear. <laughs> like, I feel so much for you, you know? I-, I love that you're getting moments of terror out of these songs. That that feels, I feel validated. Yeah. Well, apparently, Finney's doesn't feel quite the same way. I mean, I think the song starts oh, no, I, off... I don't, I don't disagree. I think your point about the sort of reality check moment, I was just curious about... Like, whether there was true terror in what was I made for. But you're definitely, you're definitely... 100%. That there's terror in it. Yeah, it's 
it's scary to be alive and to exist. I mean, that's definitely true. Especially as a woman. Yeah, when you have death realization, you have life realization. When you're when you're in the shower and you're like, yeah. oh man, life is temporary, and I'm in a I'm in a flesh suit, mm-hmm. and I and and anything could happen at any moment. Yeah, it's hard to hard to keep standing up in that shower. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> there is kind of a dramatic truth in what you guys write, and and these moments of realization that happen in these songs to me are really kind of like actor exercises and it's funny because yes. I spent like the weekend like driving around like listening and this is the thing that people tell me about my show I, I couldn't get out of the car and I've never actually done this before just like listen to like somebody's like sort of entire discography song after song after song and I want to oh, listen wow. to it in the car because I think that about this thing that I hear that the songs you guys do like I love hearing the Barbie song in a theater so you could hear everything what I thought was I'm probably wrong like hearing like little like bits of drumming or little bits of organ all this sort of imagery that feel like a pointless painting you get that same kind of thing in the car I think too thank you for listening to our discography you're definitely you're definitely referencing some deep cuts so yeah, it are. it checks out that you just refreshed <laughs> yourself because that's a big honor you're definitely uh not just looking at our top 10 on Spotify because mm-hmm. the ones you're mentioning are not in our top 10 on yeah, Spotify. Again, we're so proud of those songs. We don't have a sort of a lesser or greater pride in our songs based on their popularity. But, you know, I think, again, it's like we really are just trying to make the music that we want to hear. You know, that's why I think that fan fiction sort of joke really hits home for both of us in general because I think that that's sort of in its essence like what fan fiction is mm-hmm. is oh man I wish that Snape and Sirius Black hooked up when they were at Hogwarts <laughs> you know and um, and so they write it they write that version of the world mm-hmm. and why shouldn't they be allowed to you know I think that that's sort of you know whether it's sonically whether it's the production that we're working on or just Billy's vocal production or the lyrics themselves I think our fantasy is that we're just making music that that fulfills our innermost desires. I think we we are on our best day, on our, our most successful day creatively, we're not worrying about anybody else. And we're just making the song that is the coolest to us. We drive home listening to it and feeling proud. Mm-hmm. That's true. Let me ask if you guys can remember for each of you, what was the first movie you saw in the movie theater? I'm told that I was taken to see the Sesame Street movie and that the first 10 minutes scared me and made me cry and my parents had to run me out of the theater when I was like three or four. I don't remember. Um, I really don't remember. My mom was talking about how we went to see Shark Boy and Lava Girl in theaters. I used to love that movie so much. I used to watch it all the time. And my mom was saying how... She kept falling asleep, and I kept I kept getting in her face, going, "Mom, you're missing the best part," and making her wake up over. <laughs> I did and over that to again. her during Happy Feet, also. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. There's something about seeing a movie with sound, and I remember, and most people can remember the first time they heard a song in a movie that really hit them, just because movie speakers are different, and oh. you, you get oh. this sense of the way the the ground vibrates under your feet, and the way the air moves around in the theater. And I wonder mm-hmm. if there were moments like that for you guys, hearing songs and movies that made you think, wow, this is something bigger than we get on the car drive home. You know, I was a little kid for this, so forgive me, but I really had a a life-changing experience with the movie Spirit, which is this, like, animated oh, the horse, horse movie. movie. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, Brian Adams did the soundtrack for that movie, 
and he has this one song that's called Here I Am, I think. And oh my God, it, it, it literally like changed me. Here I am, this is me. There's nowhere else on earth I'd rather be. Here I am, it's just me and you. Tonight we make our dreams come true. It's a new Like people don't think about how impactful and important music is in everything that we watch, you know? Like, like Phineas has been scoring a lot recently, and like, what's so interesting is like, watching a scene without the music, like when they send it to you and they're like, here's what I want here. You watch it and it's silent and you're like, what the hell is going on? Like, what What am I, like, this is so wrong and weird and it doesn't feel, it feels bad. And then, you know, you add music to it and it completely changes it. And also you could add music to it and change it in like a terrible way also, or you can change it into like an incredible 180. I don't know. I just think like, like, you know, you, you can watch a movie where the, the soundtrack is, makes or breaks the movie yeah, it can make sure. a movie bad like literally i have watched movies there i can i'm thinking of them right now there are movies i've seen where i'm like the movie was good and the soundtrack was bad and the score was bad and i didn't like it because of that and then vice versa there's movies that the movie was like totally mediocre but the soundtrack absolutely killed and so you know i love the movie <laughs> the two examples of seeing things in theaters that i thought had like songs that slapped in them Growing up, the first Twilight had supermassive black hole. By Absolutely. Beatles, and it had um, Flightless Bird, American Mouth by Iron and Wine. And Bella's Lullaby is fire. Yeah, Underrated. And then the other movie <laughs> that I know Billy is going to get down with me on this is uh, Shark Tale. Shark, Shark Tale. Shark was so bomb. It had Car Wash. Shark Tale. So bomb. Uh, car Wash. Yeah, it's so true. Uh, they sing car wash. They, <laughs> they have a fish, Christina Aguilera, and sings it. <laughs> that's true. That's true. That's and they true. also they sing one other one in that movie that like yeah. Uh, um, I mean, Gold Digger, the Angelina Jolie. Yeah. Fish. Oh my god, unbelievable. Um, very arousing. <laughs> yeah, it's true. She's hot as hell. <laughs> We're gonna take a break. It's the treatment of kids of Billy Eilish and Vinny. Stay with us. <laughs> Let's not leave it on the locker room floor. It's the treatment. My guests are Billie Eilish and Phineas. Their song for Barbie, which is, of course, a multiple Grammy nominated, is What Was I Made For? But you're going to see the short case here slash the treatment. I wanted to ask you about being asked to do the song for, for Barbie, because did you get it as seeing the film and then saying, we want this for it? Or did Mark Ronson come to you and say, I've got these pieces I want you guys to put it in? How did all that work? Phineas, you you really were the beginning of this because I remember yes. just minding my business and Phineas being like, you know, randomly at some point last year, like, hey, would you want to make a Barbie song? And I was like, it was so random. And I was like, well, yeah, but like, what? Like, I was like, why? <laughs> what even are we talking about? Because I knew they were making a movie because I'd seen like some tweet about it or something. And I was like, that's so tight, but like, what, what even would we make? And like, would that even make sense? And like, does she even want us to? Anyway, time went on. And I, I think at some point in like December, Phineas texted me and was like, Mark and Greta are going to call us tomorrow at some point and like, tell us about the movie. And I was like, okay. And we're sitting around. And the next day we got a group FaceTime call and it was Greta and Mark. And they were somewhere in New York, I think, or London. and 
basically just kind of explained what was going on and like how it was all going. And it was very friendly and casual, like the whole thing. It was very much it was not like corporate at all. When Greta asked us to come see some clips, she was in town, probably showing the studio or something. And she was in town and it was uh, her and David Heyman, the producer, had us over to Warner Brothers. On the first initial call, she said, I really, you know, before I would even ask you to maybe write anything, you know, you should see whatever of the movie we have to show you. Yeah. And they were still editing. This was like back in January. It was almost, you know, it was like 11 months ago. They were still editing. So they showed us the first 40 minutes. Greta, I think, was literally due in like eight days or something. She was yeah, um, about to have her second baby. Yeah. And so she was... it was like, it was like, it was like, the whole thing was like really crazy to us that she was willing to take time out of her life to meet with us and explain the movie to us. The whole thing. Yeah, it was really like amazing. Privileged. And so she showed us the first 40 minutes kind of uninterrupted. And then that was sort of the, the full assembly of the first 40. And then she showed us like five or six scenes that she thought would also help us be informed of the movie and uh, kind of gave us a rundown of everything. We were just so moved. And the the scene that our song ended up in at the time had just kind of a, you know, like a tone. There was no sort of music. It was just kind of a note mm-hmm. in the temp music um, that was beautiful. So there wasn't anything for us to sort of be inspired by. It was just just that playing as a reference. And there was also no montage. Um, she she made this beautiful montage of sort of clips of everyday life from members of her cast and crew, which I think is like such a beautiful idea. Yeah. And there was none of that. So it was just Margot standing there just crying in the incredible way that Margot can. Yeah. Um, and we were so moved by that alone that we went home and wrote what was I made for the next day. What you're saying is that you guys kind of, boiled down the whole movie into the sort of the sentiments and the moments in the song. Yeah, it was like a magical experience, to be honest with you. It it was like, you know, I've said this before, but we were in this period of time where Phineas and I were really having trouble being creative. And even when we were creative, it just didn't feel like good. And we'd been writing and trying to write and nothing was really working and it just was like not making sense. And, you know, we went to see Barbie on January 15th. It was a very rainy day. It was the two of us. I remember being like really going through something in that period of time. And I was just kind of like, I don't know. I, God, it's so funny to think about because in that period of time, I was really having a, the most intense, I think I've ever had like identity. I don't even want to say crisis, but like identity failure. I don't even know how to describe it. It was just a dark, a dark period for me. And I, um, you know, was like spending every day just like alone thinking like, what the hell am I doing? (laughs) Like, what, who am I and what am I going to do with my life? And I don't know what I like. I don't know what I don't like. I don't know. I don't know. But um, the next day on the 16th, we were in the studio, we were working and we weren't coming up with anything. And then as I was like leaving, he was like, damn, should we like just make a, was it make a pass at a, at a Barbie song? And and I remember just being like, that is a ridiculous idea. Like on the day that we are so uncreative, you're going to say we should make the super important, super heartfelt song for, for Greta Gerwig's movie of Barbie. Like there's no way we're going to come up with anything good right now. And Literally, we wrote almost the entire song right then. And 
it was just one of those times, man, where, where, you know, I'm not, I'm not a religious person and I'm not really like much of a spiritual person, but I think like it's times like that where I'm like, damn, like <laughs> something, something just happened. Like something in the air just did something. I don't know what, but it's the kind of thing that like makes me believe in some shit. I don't even know. So fresh what. in our minds too. I think that was the real, you know, thing we were benefiting from. We'd just seen it the day before. So mm-hmm. It was awesome. Yeah, it was amazing. Very special. It's the treatment. My guest was just talking about getting the Holy Spirit, not Spirit, the animated film, is Billie Eilish. She works with Phineas. They composed, of course, the terrific song for the Barbie movie, What Was I Made For? You can also hear the show at kcrw.com slash the treatment. I feel like so much you guys are doing is reacting to things in your world, and that's where the points of view come from. This is the thing we're talking about in the first half, by entering into a character and finding a point of view. I still feel that line in my head, uh, what a year-long headache does to you. I mean, there are so many lines like that to me. They're just about these kinds of summing up of these emotional sort of downturns that people have, sometimes in really like sort of upbeat context or sometimes not, that I really sort of attribute to you. And this movie was the catalyst for you guys getting back to your center, wasn't it? I think so. I think, like, I don't know if Phineas would agree with that, but I definitely think that this was a, a big turning point. We we had written one song before this that was a big moment for us. That song is ending up being the first song on this album we're working on, and that's really nice. So I feel like, I don't know, I have these, like, special places in my heart for, like, you know, that song we made that kind of, opened us up again. And then Barbie, I think, did the same thing. Like, you know, actually, I actually have a video that I took of us working on Barbie. And I was like, setting up the camera. And I said to Phineas, like, we still got it, Phineas. (laughs) And it's like a really sweet moment. And um, I don't know. And I think as time went on, and then we recorded it, and I started playing it for people and working on it more. And then Mark added some strings, like it just became so real. And we kind of we're like, oh, damn, like, this is maybe a big deal. Like, maybe this is, this is a big, a big moment and really, really special. And also when we sent it in, we were so like, like, this is a big deal. Like, what is Greta going to think? She might hate it. She might say, you guys, we're not using this. Did you really think that? I don't know. We just never know, you know, we're not, we're, we have no idea. And we thought we did a good job, but like, we don't know what she wants. And Basically, we we sent it, and she was like, she was like, I've been weeping for hours. Yeah, was so I'm, and then for the next couple of weeks, she would text us kind of randomly, being like, Oh my god, I've been listening to the song again, and I've been just weeping and weeping and weeping, and it's just, <laughs> it was, it was really, we feel really lucky. Well, did you feel that same way too, Finish? I mean, I just again seeing it, in the, hearing it in the movie theater, and hearing all those kind of audio textures in it. I mean, it's really a magical song to hear in a really big space. Yeah, I only I only got to go see it in the theater once, but it was it was really moving. It's very surreal. I mean, like especially when it comes to these movies that we've gotten to do this and James Bond movie, it's like the craziest part is like these are movies I would have bought a ticket to see on opening day anyway. Yeah, for it, sure. It has nothing to do with the fact that we got to be a part of them. I'm a fan. You know, so to watch the Barbie movie, which I think is spectacular, and to have gotten to soundtrack a scene, it's a crazy honor. So the whole thing is pretty surreal. It's funny, though, because I guess I think both of these songs are being kind of emotional counterpoints to the movie. 
uh, mm. both these movies, the Bond song, uh, No Time to Die, and, and this. And I wonder if that was something that you were consciously trying to do, or is it just something that emerged? Uh, clearly, it just emerged with, with, with Barbie for the Bond film, because that's kind of a, it's also kind of a summing up, too, in the way that what was that made for is a summing up. But it's almost like you're summing up 50 years of Bond in that one song. I think our our big, you know, sort of assignment is just to write whatever we're taking away from the story. And I think we don't think beyond that, really. We just we just take away what we take away and we put that to music. So I, I really am honored by that compliment to the to the music. But I think I don't dream that big when I sit down to write a song with Billy of like, uh, you know, I think if, if we sat down and we were like, we're going to sum up the 25 Bond movies right now all in this one song, we'd like have a panic attack <laughs> and, and, and go, you know, like leave. So, you know, we just read the script or see the movie and we just write what we're feeling. Let me ask you this kind of uh, last question. I'll start with you, Billy. These are both big iconic things in the culture. Barbie and James Bond. And is there some excitement that comes to getting to be a part of that world and to contribute to the way people, I mean, this is the first Barbie movie and people didn't know what to think of it. And they thought it might be a joke. Instead, it's a, a really emotionally honest piece of, 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 of storytelling in the same way I think that No Time to Die was. I wonder if that's the fun of it, to get to contribute to something that is going to have such a, a big presence in people's lives. Like, it's cool enough to be part of something this big in general. But, you know, we're part of something that is so, is and was so incredibly impactful and historical, you know, literally historical. What was it like the first movie directed by a female that like crossed a billion? Crossed a billion. I don't even know what the um, numbers were, but, you know, it, this was like a historical movie in so many ways and you know the song i think hit so many people in in ways i was just so so surprised and and excited about and felt felt so connected to women all over the world and people all over the world and um you can kind of bet that anything greta makes is going to be good but like every person who's very talented makes something bad including us, <laughs> including us. and <laughs> I was worried for her when I when I heard that she she signed on to make a Barbie movie. I was like, dude, that is a enormous task. And to make a Barbie movie that acknowledges all of the little controversies that it acknowledges, but then making it cool, making it beautiful, making it touching, making it funny, making it impactful, making it look beautiful and the shots are beautiful and the set design is beautiful but then having it actually have an incredible way of of telling a story and having a great story being told like there's so many parts that when we went to watch a little bit of it for the first time I was so nervous for her I was like this is a big deal like what is going to happen and there was no doubt in my heart that she didn't do an incredible job I was just like this is such a crazy thing that she's been doing and Phineas and I were sitting in the theater, the two of us, and we were just like, oh, okay. Yeah, okay. This is this is real. She 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 killed it. So it's so special to be a part of. I, I really am so I feel so lucky and so honored and I'm really proud. Well, that totally sums it up. It was beautifully put. 
Well, it was, and I can't thank you guys enough. We're talking about the song nominated for Song of the Year and Record of the Year. What was that made for from the soundtrack for the film Barbie? My guests are Billy Eilish and Phineas. Guys, I can't thank you enough. Please come back and do the show again. Of course, Thanks dude. So much. Thank you so much for your time and, um, you know, huge honor. I used to float. Now I just they are Grammy winners. They are Oscar winners. They won the Golden Globe for Best Song. And their song for the movie, Barbie, What Was I Made For, has been nominated for Grammys and the Golden Globe. They are the musical team of Billie Eilish and Phineas. Stories about music and film can be found at the archives at kcrw.com slash the treatment. More stories on stories to come. I'm Elvis Mitchell. It's The Treatment. KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes. Join Jacqueline Coley as she hosts a brand new podcast, Seen on the Screen. Meet the innovative people at NBC Universal as they share their journeys, inspirations, and the movies that define them. Each episode is an intimate and fun conversation about the impact of film. Seen on the Screen is available now wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. It's the treatment. I think I'm Elvis Mitchell, although my guest, Benny Safty, tells me I don't sound like Elvis Mitchell. Um, we're here to talk about so many of the things he's done. Of course, you know him from working with directors such as Claire Denis, for whom he played, and I'm my favorite character name yet, CIA Man. His newest project uh, with Nathan Fielder and Emma Stone for Showtime is The Curse. One of the things I always like watching about you is the way you dress your characters. And just seeing Dougie here, who seems to have every piece of silver and turquoise available in the Southwest. I wanted to talk to you about how you found all his accoutrements. What people wear says so much about who they are. It says how much they spend in the morning, how much time they spend in the morning. And then there's also the people who wear expensive things that don't look expensive. What does that say about them? Like, who is that even for, you know? And Dougie is specifically, he's a guy who wears stuff that's expensive so that people know he's wearing something that's expensive. And then at the same time, his collection of rings is almost like a uh, medieval armor. You know, he puts them on in the morning and he feels different about himself. Because you see people with, with like this out in the world and you want to know why. And you kind of try to understand what it is. And it wasn't until probably two weeks into shooting that I stopped paying attention to like the pictures that Katina, who did the costuming, I stopped paying attention to which which ring went on which finger and it just became second nature. And it really is that once I put those on, I became the guy. And you felt like you could stop a car moving at 75 miles per hour just by putting your hands up. And there's something about the way it makes you talk. When you have that jewelry on, you want to move it around. You want to show people. And there's just things that it does to your subconscious that make you become that person. The shoes that you wear is very important. You know, as an actor, also just like as when you're creating a show, you got to think about that stuff for all the other people, you know, because the shoes that Asher wears are very specific. You know, there's something that he clearly saw on like a 
on a, on a cool blog that he's like, oh, maybe I should wear that and that'll rub off on me. Whereas Dougie is somebody who, who believes he's kind of running to his own drum. But then again, you see people like Dougie a lot. So you, you kind of have to wonder what does individualism actually mean in that way, you know? By the way, we should say the show, The Curse is about a married couple whose intent is to create a, a reality show about housing with a, a sustainability ethos and what happens when their life is infected by a curse. And Dougie is their producer and he's definitely curated the way he looks. I was thinking too about the way your characters use their hands. I was thinking about Licorice Pizza, how when he's wearing his suits, his hands are constantly at his side because he wants you to see the way the suits hang on him. I was thinking about that even for Oppenheimer, how sort of slowly your teller speaks, but how playful he is with that. I mean, there's this way of these characters want to be reckoned with as people. There are certain things that you, when you're doing them, you maybe aren't necessarily conscious of it, but then when you look at it afterwards, you can then kind of understand where certain things came from. And with Teller, the, the fact that you brought up the playfulness there is is huge. And I'm it's like, I saw that when I watched all these interviews with him. He is very measured and he speaks with a certain cadence that really does dictate. Like as I'm doing it now, it, it forces you to listen to him and understand what he's saying. But then at the same time, he himself is very large ego and he won't, he'll, he'll take a dig at somebody and he'll use the pacing of his words to make that point stronger. You realize when, where you put your arms and where you kind of rest them, you don't want to cover up certain parts of what you're wearing because you made that decision. You know, it's like if somebody doesn't care about their clothing, then they're not going to care about where their hands go, you know, that kind of thing. Like, but oh, if I put it here, I don't want to crease the front of the shirt. I want to crease the back where most people aren't looking, you know, that kind of stuff does go through your head. And specifically when you're playing a part or you're telling somebody to play a part, you, you do need to talk about these things. But then a lot of the times, if somebody isn't doing, you just correct the hand motion to do what you wanted it to do in a lot of ways. But specifically, I think in Licorice Pizza, the, the ties were such an important part of the costume. And I remember Paul really like hammering that one in, like the specific tie that Joel would wear. It's amazing to focus on all that because I do think it is also interconnected. And if one thing reads false, then it does, it messes with everything else. And it is a very delicate um, house of cards that you're trying to create. I guess when you're working with trying to make something feel realistic, right? That for me goes back to your lead character in Daddy Longlegs, who also is very much deliberate about the way he wants to be seen and the way he presents. And that idea of what you guys do and what interests you is to show the the presentational part versus what's behind all that. And the, the fourth episode of The Curse, where we get to really see what's underneath that superficial armor that Dougie wears, is really funny, awful stuff. Yes. It's playing with judgment. You know, people, they can't help but judge. It's a part of society. And something that I think we're playing with is if you make a snap decision or a judgment about somebody based on what they look like or what they're wearing, and then you move on as if that's a truth, that's a mistake. You know, that's not how we should live our lives and live, the, live through the world. So by building these characters and putting them out there and showing that there is something even underneath somebody who you might hate, it's kind of an extreme example of that so that it, it, it really hammers home the point of, oh, you thought you knew who this person was, but really they're hiding something that's very sad 
and they're dealing with a lot of stuff. And it happens to me a lot in New York City in particular, because as you move through the city, you could be having the worst day in the world based on something really important or impactful to your family or your life. And you may just be not in the best mood, you know, and then if somebody comes across you, that's all they've seen you as. And that's who they're going to judge you about. And they don't know what you've been through. They don't know what your family is like. They don't know what your background is. So they're making that judgment based on that split second. And I guess our job is to just to spread that out and tell you to not do that as much. We see the exhaustion of wearing those costumes and all that affect on those people. At some point, we get a chance to see what's behind all that and just how heavy all that armament is, don't we? When you spend time with a character and you spend time in moments that you wouldn't normally see in a TV show or a movie. I go back to this one moment in a, in a Brasson movie, La Dame de Bois de Bologna. It was one of oh, his sure. first movies. And I love, I love that movie. And there was something in it that really struck me. It was after she goes on a date with somebody and the date doesn't go quite to plan. And she says goodbye and she's about to go upstairs to her apartment. And any normal filmmaker would just have her say goodbye. And then we would cut to her at some point in her nighttime routine or even the next day. But Brisson shows you the elevator ride. He shows you the lonely elevator ride that she takes up the stairs. I always found that so profound. It's like you're saying, you're seeing the moment where they're not necessarily thinking about all of that stuff. And they're just thinking about themselves. And there's a moment in Daddy Longlegs where his kids go away and he's able to relax on the couch, but you're seeing it through the window across the street and you're catching them in moments where they feel like they're not being looked at. We're talking brace on because this show isn't esoteric enough with my guest, Benny Safdie. He's starring in The Curse, among many other things he's done as an actor and filmmaker. It's The Treatment, which you can also hear at kcrw.com slash The Treatment. As you were talking about Bresson, I was thinking about finding non-actors because he wanted that level of vulnerability to be shown and people that we have no expectation about. And what you have done so often is to pick people we do have expectations about, be it Adam Sandler, in the case of The Curse, Emma Stone, and then get them to play with that. And then, in addition to that, then you are taking that and then you're putting it with people who are in the same place as where Brasson was coming from, where you have these faces that you know are coming from reality and are not coming from the world of, like, creation in a lot of ways. And putting those two things together... It's a risk because one could undercut the other. You know, if one thing isn't as real as the other person, that's a dangerous place to be in the sense of like everything could go up in flames and it could not work. But that's part of the fun is that taking somebody like like Emma, it's such a fascinating performance to watch because you're watching somebody be self-conscious about a fake brain, which is so hard. It's something I can kind of understand because I did it in Licorice Pizza. That was part of it was when he's at the dinner at the end of that movie and he's having the argument with his boyfriend. He's in a place where nobody knows who he truly is. And yet he's having a very personal argument that he doesn't want people to know he's having. So he is self-conscious while having an argument. So I can understand that. And it's really, really hard to do. And Emma's doing not just that with one person, 
but she's in a room of 10 people and she has to do it for each and every person in the room because she's that self-conscious. And there's something really going on in her brain. It's like one thing can't work without the other. I do think that you need to have this kind of soup of actors, first-time actors. And and I guess it's like, it's I, that's why I like saying first-time actors because non-professional actors is a very different thing because when they get on the screen, they're acting, you know, they're doing the work and they're trying their hardest. So I like to say it's just their first opportunity, you know, that they've been given. So I think that that's an important distinction. Yeah, there's something about just the level of performance that you can get and then taking somebody with baggage that you may have. I think with with Emma, there's something, she's such a chameleon and she's able to embody certain emotions so deeply that this was really difficult because there's a lot of tough things that she has to do as Whitney, you know, from a place of, like a consciousness place, you know, about humanity and stuff. So there is, there's a lot going on there and yet she's able to do it. And, and her arc really is a full season. You know, you feel her changing around four or five and then where she ends up in six is very different. And I think that that's something that I, I thought was really exciting with TV is that you can take a story and tell the story over a long period of time, like a movie, but through the episodes, you can actually learn about people in a very in a very deep way, which you do in movies. The guys that people show, but they're asking themselves questions about that persona that they're creating as they're creating it. We see it in Daddy Long Legs. We see it in Uncut Gems. We see it certainly with Joel Walks and, and the way you played him in, in Licorice Pizza. All these people who are aware of the way they want people to take them in and, and comprehend them but also the kind of insecurity of how far do I go with this? And we really, more than anything, we see it in the curse when these characters are by themselves. I wonder where this comes from for you, going back to the beginning of the stuff that you did with your brother, but also you as an actor. How much do I believe in what I believe that I'm showing to people? I mean, this question that you're asking yourself as you're trying to pose this confidence, because finally it's about vanity and the weight of vanity on these people. I could go back to like when in high school, the first thing that I ever did was stand-up comedy. And when I went to go out on stage, the whole character I created was a guarantee to bomb on stage. And again, I didn't want people to think this was some kind of anti-comedy where it was supposed to be funny because it wasn't funny. That might come later, but my goal with going on stage was everybody in that room had to understand and think that this was a real person who thought they were doing real comedy and very nature of that person getting up on going so far as getting up on stage in front of real people and doing something that they thought was funny and getting dead silence for seven minutes. There's something really tragic about seeing somebody try to be funny and seeing somebody really genuinely believe that their life is funny. But when you see elements of sadness coming out of these jokes, which inevitably is in a lot of comedy, you know, there is sadness there. And it's just seeing somebody have to contend with a direct contradiction of I'm trying to be funny, but what I'm saying is really sad. And yet it has that kind of tone to it. What's that about? And it, it's in that contradiction that I believe you see people. And I think when you see people trying, that's really the core of who somebody is. 
because I think it comes down to motivation, you know, and that's something that we play with on the curse a lot is that Nathan and I were really always talking about if somebody does something, two people do the same thing and yet their motivation is different. That motivation changes how you perceive that action. And if vanity plays a part in that, it's going to change how you feel about what they did. If it doesn't, then that's going to change how you feel about what they did. And is that okay? You know, because if the end result is the same, what does that mean? You know, because you're taking an action that's happening and then you're purposely putting on a hypothetical situation surrounding it or behind it when at the end of the day, the action's the same. So vanity does that. And that's a part of it because somebody is aware of something. And if somebody's aware of something, sometimes that makes you question it. But then again, they could be unaware, then playing with the fact that they accidentally exposed a part of who they were. That's going to happen when the armor falls apart or when you get a glimpse in or a glimmer inside. That's really when you understand who that character is. And that's when it's like when somebody's trying to lift something heavy. If you really tell somebody, lift up that rock, and they try their hardest, at some point, their self-consciousness, the way their face looks, the way their body looks, if they're trying to lift it up as hard as possible, I guarantee they're not going to be thinking about their form or whatever. They're just going to try and lift it, and every part of their brain is going to shut off to do that task. And you'll be able to see who they are, which is, I think that's just really interesting. My guest is Benny Safty. His newest project as actor and co-creator is The Curse for Showtime. You've got to come back and do the show again, man. It's great having you here. I would love to. This was, this was such an amazing time. Oh, God. He co-starred this year in Oppenheimer. And this year, he also co-created the Showtime series, The Curse. Actor-filmmaker Benny Safdie co-stars in it as well. More to come. It's The Treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. It's The Treatment. This time of year, thoughts turn to the ways Christmas surfaces in entertainment. How it surprises us next. The Treat from someone who works here. Watch me now, here I go. So I get maybe a little obsessed about, obviously, Christmas movies this time of year. And we so often hear our friends talking about what is a Christmas movie and what is not a Christmas movie. Was it Santa Claus versus the Martians or the Christmas that almost wasn't or the oeuvre of Shane Black who makes action melodramas about men at Christmas time who are forced to come into the community so they can battle evil, be it Lethal Weapon or Kiss Kiss Bang Bang or any of the movies he's done as a writer, even Iron Man 3 for that matter. One of my favorite Christmas songs, just because it's so evocative, is, comes from a movie that's about Christmas called The Odessa File, in which uh, John Voight is a journalist battling neo-Nazis in early 1960s Germany. 
But the song Christmas Train, you see Voight driving into the city and the song is playing and it was a Perry Como song and it was written by Andrew Lloyd Webber. Believe that too, it's Christmas, remember, there's no one remember, the whole world needs It's Christmas, remember, does no one remember, and we can hear the impatience and this, this sort of hint of anger that's a abrasion and irritation and unusual for a Perry Como, I thought. But that's something that, that sort of stays with me because it's a, a Christmas memory <laughs> movie I saw on Christmas Day with a Christmas song in it. The Christmas movie I go back to again and again is a film by the writer-director Bill Forsyth. It's called Comfort and Joy. It is virtually impossible to find in North America, but the story is about, for me, what Christmas is. A radio DJ, Dickie Bird, played by Bill Patterson, who you may know as the dad of Phoebe Waller-Bridge in Fleabag. And whenever I see him, I'm thrilled because I'm reminded of Comfort and Joy. He's a morning DJ whose life goes into free fall when his girlfriend just leaves him at the beginning of the movie. And we're kind of waiting to see if she's going to come back. But these adventures happen, and he tries to throw himself into this job he has, which is about bringing light and delight into people's homes. But he can't do it because he keeps going back to Maddie, Maddie, his ex-girlfriend, who he's obsessed about. And so he decides he's going to give his life purpose by becoming a reporter in addition to being a morning radio personality and he starts reporting on these ice cream crimes in Scotland. I'm not making any of this up. But the movie ends with sacrifice, with him doing something for kind of the greater good, but it's also a small moment. And I think what I really cherish about this movie. It reminds me in so many ways of Christmas movies I like, which are about people getting over irritants, be it Christmas in July, which is one of my other favorite Christmas movies, or The Shop Around the Corner, which is about a bunch of really sort of not very nice people figuring out a way to get through the holidays. The crowning note, if you will, the cherry, the whipped cream atop the sundae, of Comfort and Joy is a beautiful score by Mark Knopfler, who would also work with Bill Forsyth on Local Hero. But this score is not bells ringing and lots of trumpets, but it's melancholy guitar and saxophone, sometimes speeded up, but it ends on this kind of lovely, melancholic grace note. By the way, I'm Elvis Mitchell, and this is The Treat. The show is produced and edited by Rebecca Mooney and mixed by Katie Gilchrist, who I'm staring at right now. We had help, thank goodness, for the holidays and all year round from Mandibus and Laura Kondarajan. To better days and happy holidays, everyone. I'm Elvis Mitchell. It's The Treatment.
KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes, presenting Scene on the Screen with Jacqueline Coley, a new podcast about the people at NBC Universal and the movies that define them. Available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.